Tonight, fears of a wider war after a missile lands inside Poland near the Ukrainian border. A deadly explosion under investigation. I don't want to speculate or get into hypotheticals. As Russia launches a brutal bombardment on Ukraine. We can see what the enemy wants. They will not succeed. Donald Trump's primetime speech for a third White House run. America's comeback starts right now. The former president and the growing GOP backlash. I think that this election was the funeral for the Republican Party. Plus, marking a population milestone. The unprecedented growth is the result of two parallel trends. Planet Earth at 8 billion people and counting. CTV National News with Omar Sachedina. Good evening, everyone. A lone missile strike is threatening to turn Russia's invasion of Ukraine into a wider international conflict tonight. That's because it exploded inside Poland, a NATO nation where an attack on one can be considered an attack on all. Tonight, G7 leaders, including Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau, held an emergency meeting where the U.S. president questioned where the missile came from. It's unlikely in the minds of the trajectory that it was fired from Russia. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. All of this happening a day after Ukraine's president said the retaking of a critical city marked the beginning of the end of the war. CTV's Kevin Gallagher starts us off. Smoke over the site of an explosion in a Polish border town after a missile killed two people. Poland says it was a Russian-made missile, but the Kremlin denies hitting NATO territory. At the G20 summit, U.S. President Joe Biden and top advisors spoke with Poland's president over the phone as the Pentagon tries to determine if Russia was responsible. Uh, we will make that determination and we will determine uh, appropriate next steps as well. Tonight, Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, tried to curb anxiety, calling the explosion a one-off incident as his government considers invoking NATO's Article 4 used if a country is threatened. It's saying there's an emergency, it's, it's making the thing serious, but it's not anything that leads to a commitment of deployment of troops. Far short of NATO's Article 5, which would consider an attack on one member an attack on all, potentially triggering a war between nuclear powers. Uh, we're in contact with Poland as well as with our partners. Um, my heart is with the family and loved ones of the victims and also with the people of Poland. The explosion in Poland comes on a devastating day for Ukraine as more than 100 Russian missiles pummeled Ukrainian cities, targeting civilian areas and knocking out power to millions. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky accused Russia of hitting Poland. He called it a significant escalation in the war. Top NATO ambassadors will reportedly meet tomorrow, Omar, after Poland requested it under Article 4. All right, Kevin, thank you. The war in Ukraine and the missile in Poland overshadowed other matters on the G20's agenda today. But tensions between Canada and China were also discussed on the sidelines of the summit in a meeting between Justin Trudeau and Xi Jinping. CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver reports from Bali tonight. 
After talking tough on China, the Prime Minister pulled Chinese President Xi Jinping aside for a brief 10-minute chat on the margins of the first G20 roundtable session. It was a good conversation uh, and it is important to indeed keep uh, channels open. I've reiterated uh, to uh, my colleague uh, that I'm always available, uh, but at the same time that he can expect that our approach is transparent. North Korea, climate change, the war in Ukraine, human rights and China's interference in Canada were all on the table, but few details have been released. How China responded in conversations with the foreign minister or the prime minister and what Chinese officials brought up is unclear. So the signal that's sent, his words from this conversation, do trickle down uh, quite quickly and open up uh, lower level um, dialogues, possibilities across a broad spectrum, uh, environmental cooperation, economic cooperation, uh, trade. Talks come one week after Canada revealed its looming Indo-Pacific strategy will be tough on China and encourage trade and business elsewhere in Southeast Asia. As part of that shift, the Prime Minister today pledged $750 million to help fund new infrastructure projects in the Indo-Pacific region involving Canadian businesses. But doing more comes at China's expense. Seeing the Indo-Pacific uh, strategy, we see that perhaps Canada is making a choice now to, to kind of take the risks of having a more acrimonious relationship with China. Tuesday's informal talk is perhaps a sign of the fine line Canada is walking between preserving economic ties with China and calling out human rights abuses. Unlike Canada, the United States, Australia and France, Omar, all had much longer official bilateral meetings with China. All right, Annie Bergeron Oliver in Bali, Indonesia. Thank you. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was forced to delete a tweet that condemned the Iranian regime for sentencing 15,000 protesters to death. Problem is, it isn't true. The Prime Minister's office said the post was informed by incomplete reporting and lacked context. His office added that the tweet was based on warnings of possible future sentences, including the death penalty, from human rights advocates. But that was not made clear in the tweet. Mass protests began in September after 22-year-old Masa Amini died in police custody for allegedly violating the country's dress code for women. Twitter was also the platform where former U.S. President Donald Trump leveraged his base, but late tonight he used a ballroom at his Mar-a-Lago estate to make a comeback bid in a move that could intensify the infighting among Republicans. CTV's Joy Malbin is in Florida tonight. Joy. Tonight, Omar, Donald Trump is looking to defy all the cards stacked against him, saying he's all in for a third presidential run. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Planning a comeback, Trump hopes to run his campaign as the underdog, an attempt to recapture that Trumpian magic of 2016. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, and my fellow citizens, America's comeback starts right now. This despite more Republicans turning on him as more election losses pile up among Trump-backed candidates in the midterms, many of them election deniers, including Arizona's Carrie Lake, who lost her bid to be governor. Do we love this man or what? The conservative Wall Street Journal writing, clinging to 2020 election denial as Mr. Trump has, is a loser's game. 
Mitt Romney calling Trump an albatross around the party's neck. I think that this election was the funeral for the Republican Party as we know it. Even as Trump faces multiple criminal investigations, the twice-impeached former president still has a loyal following. Donald Trump's not a quitter. Donald Trump's in it to win it like I am and like all of us, most of us are. But after that landslide victory in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is leaving the door open, perhaps to run himself. Uh, I would just uh, tell people to go check out the scoreboard from last Tuesday night. Firing back at Trump, who has taunted him for weeks, pitching his win as a blueprint for Republican success to the White House. He's a young, energetic Trump without all of the Trump baggage. And I think that scares, uh, that may scare the Trump, uh, the Trump team. But tonight, Trump is eager to reclaim the spotlight, perhaps to cut off other contenders or try to shield himself from his mounting legal challenges. Omar? Joy Melvin in Palm Beach, Florida tonight. Joy, thank you. A key witness testified at the Emergencies Act inquiry today. RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky spoke about the government's impatience with the Ottawa Police Service and her own assessment about whether invoking the act was even necessary. CTV's senior political correspondent Glenn McGregor has the details. For Canada's top RCMP officer and her deputy, the Freedom Convoy was a policing challenge like they'd never faced before. Had a lot of difficult problems, but not this kind. Throughout the protest, Commissioner Brenda Lucky acted as a go-between, relaying reports to the Prime Minister and his officials about attempts by Ottawa police to clear the streets. In those meetings, growing criticism of the performance of the force and then Chief Peter Slowly. I could hear the frustration and from that I inferred that they were losing confidence. With no solution in sight, Slowly put out a confusing call to the RCMP and the Ontario Provincial Police for 1,800 reinforcements. Without a plan, both us and EOPP were kind of struggling as to what, what types of resources do you actually need to, uh, to, to, uh, to assist. The inquiry is examining the federal government's decision to use the Emergencies Act. Lucky warned it might not be necessary, telling Cabinet, we have not yet exhausted all available tools. Charges could be laid under existing authorities for various criminal code offences. But the next morning, the Prime Minister's then National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, sent out a scathing email. This is about a threat to national interest and institutions by people who do not care about or understand democracy, who are preparing to be violent. An RCMP intelligence officer was asked to draft a report backing up that view, warning of the potential for a lone actor attack by someone inspired by the convoy's anti-government message. Several hours after... Invoking the Emergencies Act. Days later, police equipped with riot gear and their new powers moved in to bring the protests to an end. In coming days, the Commission will hear testimony directly from former National Security Advisor Jody Thomas about her characterization of the protesters as violent and anti-democratic. Omar. All right, Glenn, thank you. Residents in a quiet pocket in B.C.'s southern interior woke up to the terrifying sound of 100 shots fired early this morning in a series of shootings. The gunfire began at the Coldwater Indian Reserve and spread to several locations around the Nicola Valley community, home to about 7,000 people. Police say the shootings were connected and likely targeted. No injuries have been reported. A federal watchdog is questioning Ottawa's commitment to Arctic defense, along with other issues, where she says promises aren't enough. The fact that concrete action, there's very little concrete action, is possibly the most frustrating thing. The Auditor General's new report warns of glaring gaps in Canada's surveillance of the northern frontier 
adding the government is failing to help prepare Indigenous communities for emergencies and is not keeping track of homelessness across the country. And there's more evidence tonight that rising interest rates have had a chilling effect on the national housing market. The Canadian Real Estate Association says that while October home sales were up 1.3% from September, sales were down 36% from a year ago. And the average home price is now nearly $645,000, down nearly 10% from last October. The annual flu season has made an early and vicious comeback, and the number of Canadians battling influenza is soaring. Localized surges have been reported in Saskatchewan, parts of Alberta, Ontario and New Brunswick. And the influenza epidemic is adding pressure on already overburdened hospitals. Here's CTV's Heather Butts. Just before turning six, Sunny spent a terrifying four days in hospital fighting the flu. She endured a lot the past couple weeks and the first five hours she just wanted to go home. So um, very difficult. Ryan Weichel says his daughter had a relentless fever, which led to a trip to the ER. A positive test for influenza A, she was dehydrated and needed treatment. After a 12-hour wait, she was admitted to pediatric care. Days later, she's home and on the mend. It was a very scary situation because it could, it could um, you know, become worse and worse as time went on if we weren't able to manage the fever and manage the hydration situations. They are among the rising number of Canadian families coping with the flu. The national test positivity rate nearly doubled in a week, jumping to 11.7%, surpassing the 5% threshold. That puts the country in an epidemic. Influenza is very unpredictable. Sometimes it comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. Sometimes the reverse, sometimes neither. That is a big mystery. Scientists do look to the southern hemisphere as a warning for what's to come. Australia also had an early flu season with a high number of infections. But even a typical year raises concern. A typical influenza season isn't mild. We lose about 3,000 people per year um, in Canada because of influenza. Seasonal influenza epidemics occur most years, but in 2020 and 2021, COVID restrictions drastically reduced the spread. The test positivity rate didn't even hit 1%. This season will be different, and right now, kids are being hit the hardest. How this intermingles with COVID-19 and other respiratory viruses, I don't exactly have a crystal ball. The good news is experts say the flu shot is effective against the influenza strains circulating right now. People just need to get it. Omar. All right, Heather, thank you. The former head of Hockey Canada, Bob Nicholson, expressed regret today for how the organization he once led handled sexual assault allegations under his watch. It is clear that we didn't go nearly far enough, particularly regarding off-ice conduct. It is perhaps a failure to see that then that brings us here today. As a sport, we all have a lot more work to do to ensure that we have a culture in hockey where everyone feels safe and welcome. Nicholson testified in front of a parliamentary committee in Ottawa. Hockey Canada's senior vice president Pat McLaughlin told the committee today the organization has paid a crisis communications company one and a half million dollars since July, though he says not with public funds. Time for a short break, but when we come back... Earth's population, where it's growing and where it's slowing. Plus, Taylor Swift crashes Ticketmaster.
There are more people on Earth than ever before. The world population has surpassed 8 billion, boosted by the triumphs of modern medicine. Much of the growth comes from the poorest countries, where there are major implications to the soaring numbers. Here's CTV's Tom Walters. For every person who died today, two were born. And in less than half a century, the world's population has doubled. But as concern grows about the demands we're making on the resources of the planet, there is optimism too. We consider this actually a moment of a success story, not a doomsday scenario that we are now 8 billion people. The success? There are more of us here now because we are here longer. Longer lifespans, lower maternal and child uh, death rates, and better health care. But while life expectancy has changed, attitudes still have not in some of the places with the highest birth rates. For example, women in sub-Saharan Africa have twice as many children as the global average. Some cultures that believe that the more children you have, the stronger you are, in quotes. With an expected jump of 75%, Nigeria will have the world's fourth biggest population by the middle of this century. It's one of just eight countries that will account for more than half of the world's population growth over the next 30 years. The hope that will change depends on more of the world sharing in the success story. More education, uh, greater gender equality, uh, more access to health care, all of these things will help to bring down the fertility rate and therefore slow the rate of growth. India is already seeing that, although it's still on track to pass China next year and become the world's most populous country. But the fact is it took 12 years for the world's population to grow from 7 to 8 billion. It's expected to take 15 years to grow by another billion. Not exactly proof that we've turned the corner, but a sign that we may be slowing down for it. Tom Walters, CTV News, Los Angeles. Still ahead, hitting an incredible high note. Beyonce ties the record for the most Grammy nominations in history. An organization with more than 100 years of history in Canada is making a major change in an effort, it says, to be more inclusive. We cannot use a name that causes harm. That's why Girl Guides of Canada will no longer use the branch name Brownies. That name is for the section of the Girl Guides for seven and eight-year-olds. The change takes effect next September. Racialized members are being consulted to determine a new name. A vocal advocate of LGBTQ rights, actor Tatiana Maslany is the latest addition to Canada's Walk of Fame. Canada, is that who decides this? Um, what an honor. So I'm clearly nailing it at all these things. The Regina-born actor is known for her recent role in She-Hulk, attorney at law, and won an Emmy for Orphan Black. She'll be honored along with other inductees at a ceremony next month. And millions of Taylor Swift fans trying to get a ticket to her next tour crashed the Ticketmaster website today. I'm not getting tickets. <laughs> the website fully crashed. Ticketmaster, please fix this. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. A lot of passionate fans. The ticket seller said that, quote, historically unprecedented demand for the singer's first tour in five years 
caused issues with the site. Some fans reported waiting in online queues for up to eight hours for tickets that went for between $49 and $449 U.S. And another pop superstar, Beyonce, now shares a major accolade with a familiar face. She tied her husband, rapper Jay-Z, for the most Grammy nominations ever with 88. Beyonce dominated the pack, scoring nine nominations this year, mostly for songs on her Renaissance album. Toronto hip-hop producer Matthew Samuels contributed to that album and received four nominations. And Montreal conductor and composer Yannick Nézé-Séguin leads the Canadian pack with five nominations in classical music categories. After the break. I'm looking forward to being that positive example for Indigenous youth and all Canadians. Meet the model breaking barriers and about to take on the world. We leave you tonight with a journey of the first Indigenous woman to win Canada's Miss World competition, a victory that came with a message of inclusion. In tonight's Indigenous Circle, CTV's Donna Sound catches up with the contestant at the centre of the unprecedented victory. Emma Morrison! This Indigenous model just made history. It still hasn't sunk in yet, to be quite honest. 22-year-old Emma Morrison is from Chapelot Cree First Nation in Ontario and beat 49 other competitors for the title of Miss World Canada. She says she wants to make change by being the change for First Nations people. I know that I have a large responsibility and I'm looking forward to being that positive example for Indigenous youth and all Canadians to show that it doesn't matter how small a reserve or community you're coming from, you can still make a large impact through drive and passion. We all need to be louder voices of advocacy. One of the tasks in the competition was to take part in a humanitarian project or service to their community. Emma's was reconnecting with her culture through ribbon skirts to empower Indigenous women and girls, giving them a physical link to their culture. I create ribbon skirts for Indigenous women to wear, so they'll have a piece of clothing to remind them to stand strong and be proud of their cultural identity. So, so far I've made 23 ribbon skirts for Indigenous women to feel beautifully empowered. Roland Morrison, a police officer, is a proud father. To put yourself out there and uh, it, it takes a lot of courage, there's a lot of bravery that's involved and you know, uh, a lot of humility too. As Miss World Canada, she will promote First Nations cultural revitalization Thank you, Emma. and represent the country at the Miss World competition next year. Donna Sound, CTV News, Toronto. And that's a snapshot of this Tuesday for all of us at CTV National News. Good night and see you tomorrow.